We want to look at the first 17 verses, so if you want to find your Bibles, uh, why don't we turn there? I've, been, I titled, uh, I've titled the message, Haman's Conspiracy Circumvented, and uh, note the outline there that is on the screen in front of you. We're down to chapter 8, The Jews Avenged. Esther is an amazing story about God's providential care for His people, which happens to be the theme of the book. Now, one of the things that stands out is his providential care for his people in spite of themselves. Now, that is certainly true of the Jews, but that's certainly not true of us, right? I was just seeing if you were listening. Anyway, of course it's true uh, of us. You know, I think we can always say Lamentations 3, 22, 23, right? It's because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So, uh, certainly... This is, above all, a story of God's covenantal faithfulness. Because of God's word and his promises, the Jews cannot be exterminated to a full extent. It cannot happen. I mean, the very reputation of God is at stake here. I mean, if you can do away with the Jews, the God of the Bible is not the God of the Bible. I mean, it's a fiction. Uh, God has placed his whole reputation on what happens to Israel. It's a really big deal. One chosen nation in the whole world, and that's Israel. And God's reputation is tied to that nation. Esther is a book about reversal. And in the end, really, history is about reversal. Uh, the saints are all trodden down through the, through the years. But in the end, in the kingdom, there's a great reversal. We have a little feel of that in our study. The Jews are often greatly persecuted, but in the end, God brings about a great reversal, of course, based in conjunction with their repentance, ultimately, But he's going to bring about a great reversal where his chosen people are blessed and the enemies of the Jews are destroyed. Well, in the context of Esther, we find that Haman's plan to have Mordecai executed backfired. And he ended up being hung on the very gallows that he had constructed for Mordecai. The tables had been turned, but still a major problem remained. The king's edict to have all the Jews annihilated on a certain day was still in place. The Jewish population at large was still threatened. Esther chapter 8 deals with this problem. So let's pick it up, Esther chapter 8 and verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And this is the way this guy is characterized consistently throughout the book of Esther, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So on on the very day that Haman was hanged, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther control over his property. All of his assets were now kind of brought under Esther's control. And he was a man of some means. Remember this. He was one of the wealthiest men in the whole kingdom. Well, now it's all brought under Esther's control. And Mordecai, here too, is brought before the king because Esther clearly revealed how close she was in relationship with him as he was her cousin and her guardian. Verse 2, So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman. (laughs) Before we hang the guy, we're going to take off that ring. Take the ring off, dude. (laughs) And so the king's got it back. And uh, so he takes that signet ring, uh, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So we got a lot of things happening here. 
The king's signet ring, which had been worn by Haman, was now given to Mordecai. And this ring signified authority as the king's special representative. Uh, It really put a stamp on all the king's official business and really amounted to making law uh, in the name of the king, whatever was stamped with this ring. So this really, in effect, recognized Mordecai now as second in command, as prime minister over the entire kingdom. An irony of ironies, Esther now was the one who uh, appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Talk about another great reversal. Haman, who had intended to plunder all the property of the Jews, now had all his property given to the control of a Jewish man who was now second in command over all the land. The tables had indeed been completely turned. Verse 3, Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. Verse 3 is probably to be seen as a continuation of the scene introduced in verse 1. It was great that Haman was taken out of the way and that Mordecai had now been promoted and honored and that all of his assets had been given to Queen Esther. All of that was good, well and good. But there was still a problem that was heavy on Esther's heart. And that was the destructive plot against the Jewish people put in place by Haman and approved by the king, which, by the way, is just kind of silently avoided all the way through here. (laughs) But uh, it was really put in place by Haman. He finagled uh, and kind of manipulated the king to that end even. But the problem is that law was still in place as the official law of the land. Now, it is debated where Mordecai and Esther were at spiritually, but certainly they were patriots. That is for sure. Here, Esther, on behalf of her people, the Jews, implored the king with tears to counteract the scheme, really the law, put in place by Haman. Verse 4, And the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. So it is clear here that Esther is once again here to beseech the king Uh, for some petition, uh, for some special favor. And once again, he extends uh, the golden scepter as a symbol of extending favor towards her. And in verses 5 and 6, we we have her formal request on behalf of her people, the Jews. Notice what she says. And said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. That's quite an introduction, isn't it? Let it be written to revoke, to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people, or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Now again... It's interesting. There's this protocol in in coming before the king. For one thing, you know, is he going to receive me? He holds out the golden scepter. But then once she gets there, there's a lot of flattery here. There's a lot of a flattering type of hype, if you will, building up to her request. Note the language. If it pleases, found favor, the thing seems right. If I am pleasing, it's hard for to imagine her saying pretty please any stronger. And then she comes to her petition. 
And that is that the, the letters that were sealed by law, that were sealed in the law by Haman, be revoked, which called for the annihilation of the Jews in all the king's provinces on a certain day. And this was then followed by an emotional plea that she is not able to bear the idea of her people being destroyed. So Esther is really totally into this at this point. I mean, she's not half-hearted about it. Very open and very unashamedly identifying with her people, the Jews, at this point. Begging, really, that the king revoke the law that called for their annihilation on the 13th day of the 12th month. Verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. So the king here kind of reminds Esther and Mordecai of all that he's already done in having Haman hanged, turning over all of his assets to the control of Esther. And really, this was to, to kind of, this is because he's the enemy of the Jews, he brings out, be, because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. So he says, I've kind of done away with him. But then, in addition, he does see the issue. And in addition, he gives one further directive. Verse 8, you yourselves, he says, write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. Perhaps Esther did not understand the finer points of the law. I, 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 I don't know about that, but perhaps. But the king points out that whatever has been written and signed with his signet ring cannot be revoked. Even he as the king could not change it. It was irrevocable. And that was the problem with what had happened with the earlier edict that Haman sealed with the king, king's signet ring that the Jews should be annihilated. Uh, we see this, whoops, one at a time. Esther chapter 1, verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him. Here's how it happens. And let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered. There's the sense of what we're talking about. Once something was written into law and sealed with the king's signet ring, it could not be changed. It was a sealed deal that could not be changed by anyone, even the king. Such was the law of the Persians and the Medes, recognized by all throughout this vast empire. By the way, this shows the incredible power that went along with controlling the king's signet ring. Uh, I mean, this was a huge position of responsibility and authority and privilege. And it serves to show the high position that Mordecai was now in and, and the trusted position he was now in, uh, being in possession of this signet ring. So as spelled out by the king, here was the deal. Haman's decree could not be revoked, but in a sense, in a sense, he's an O'Reilly politician, in a sense it could be countered. Another decree that is irrevocable could be drawn up and sealed, which would in effect counter the first degree uh, decree. 
And note the wide berth the king gave to Queen Esther and Mordecai. He essentially gave them a blank check to write out whatever counter-decree as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring, in effect turning it into irrevocable law. So they couldn't change the first law that Haman insidiously got by the king. But they could pass another law that would, in effect, largely supersede it, which is exactly what the king was suggesting they do. So verse 9, So the king's scribes were called at that time. Let's call in all the experts as far as putting, crafting this uh, new decree. They called in the king's scribes in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews and the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. You can kind of get a big head when you got that kind of authority writing a command like this. It's affecting all these, everybody in the kingdom. 127 provinces in all. To every province, its own script. To every people in their own language. And to the Jews in their own script and language. Boy, this message is going, to be, is going to be given out to everyone. And according to the king's direction, Mordecai had this decree written up in the third month of the year, which was a little over two months after the decree of Haman, which was written on the fir- in the first month. Now remember that while the decree to kill all the Jews was written up in the first month, they superstitiously then cast the lot to determine when it should happen, and it fell on the 12th month and the 13th day. So it's kind of interesting. (laughs) You can see the sovereign hand of God there, as we noted when we went through that. But this counter-decree now was given in the third month, allowing for plenty of time now yet for this new decree to be dispatched throughout the empire the left with the Jews about eight months or so uh, in order to ready themselves for this appointed day. So let's uh, note this here. Here's their calendar here, okay? So I don't know if you can see this, but this is the first month. This is when that Haman's decree went forth. Well, now it's the third month. So a couple months later, the third month, a, a counter decree, if you will. And the appointed day, according to the lot that, that Haman cast, ended up here in the 12th month on the 13th day. So they still had plenty of time, about eight months, to prepare themselves uh, for what was going to happen. So the new decree was to go throughout the entire empire, from India to Ethiopia, extending to all 127 provinces of this vast empire, which is estimated to have been about 100 million people. You know, It's kind of a guesstimate, but uh, lots of people involved here. And it was to be translated into every language, including to the Jews in their own script and language, which presumably means Hebrew. Everyone was to be made aware of this new decree. Verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring. So this had the authority of the king behind it. And sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. Once again, the national couriers, the national postmen, if you will, were called upon to deliver this message. Post-haste is the sense. And again, note the vastness of this empire, the Persian Empire. 
Uh, here's the capital. That's where they're going out from. Uh, I mean, it's going to take a little while to get throughout this whole empire, right? They're going as fast as they can, but it was a vast empire, 127 provinces. Now, even though both decrees were sealed with the king's signet letter, it would seem to me, just common sense would say, that the latter decree would undoubtedly be regarded as carrying the most weight since it comes later. Uh, Written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring certainly indicated the king's favor in this endeavor. It's got the stamp of the king on it. And in this context, that carried a lot of weight. It was clear whose side the king was really on. Now, a king, it's like you said this earlier, all the Jews should be killed on this day. But now you're writing another uh, decree, and and you're also saying this. So the king is kind of, out of both sides of his mouth, saying contradictory things with his stamp of irrevocableness on both of them. What an interesting situation. But uh, it was clear whose side the king was on at this point. And again, this was the latter decree. And you know the word would have spread far and wide about what happened to Haman. I mean, Haman was the prime minister. I mean, everybody knew about Haman, I'm sure, in the entire kingdom. And it, would have, it was public what happened to him. I mean, hung on these gallows. And so I think word got out here what was going on. Verse 11 by these letters, the king permitted, permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. Wow. Talk about a turn of events. This decree permitted the Jews to come together in self-defense. And protect themselves by whatever means necessary and to whatever degree necessary to, in effect, kill anyone who tried to kill them. Now, some have struggled with the language here, which includes children and women. But it is probable that this decree is just following the language of Haman's decree in a countering sense. Uh, Note how similar they are here. As you work your way through it, Here's what Haman's decree said, uh, sent by the couriers into all the king's provinces. What? Here's what it said. To destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, uh, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So that's what he said to do. Now we got this counter uh, that they are allowed, they're permitted to gather together, protect their lives, to destroy, kill, annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women. So you can see a lot of the same language. Annihilate, annihilate, little children and women, and to plunder, and, and to plunder their possessions. Only in this case, it's the Jews who are permitted to do this. So Haman's decree was crafted to take the lives of the Jews, while Mordecai's decree countered every point in protection of the Jewish lives. Verse 12, On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And just as Haman's edict called for the destruction of the Jews, on the 13th day of Adar, that's the the last, the 12th month of the year, in like manner, Mordecai's edict put in place the legal right of the Jews to defend themselves on that day. 
and their property. On the very same day, different edict, very same day, the Jews have the right to defend themselves and annihilate their enemies. Verse 13, a copy of this document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Now, a key purpose, as I say, in getting out this decree was so that the Jews might have ample time to ready themselves on this day uh, to avenge themselves of their enemies. And as we will see in the next chapter, they were ready to do so. And they proceeded to kill many thousands of their enemies that day. Um, There's a little bit of controversy in terms of how the text should actually read there, but the New King James reads that they killed 75,000 people that day. That's a lot of people. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 16. Uh, And it's interesting. uh, We'll talk about this next time, Lord willing, but we don't have record of a single Jew being killed that day. (laughs) 75,000 to none. That's that's pretty big ratio. Well, verse 14, the couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed by the king's command. So there was, there was pressure. And the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. This is the capital city, the fortress city. And the royal postman, as it were, went out in haste because of the king's command behind it. Verse 15, so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Now again, great contrast, great reversal. At Haman's earlier decree, Mordecai clothed himself in sackcloth. But again, what a major turn of events. Now upon this new decree going out, he went out from the presence of the king dressed in the royal colors of the Persian Empire, namely blue and white, and he went out really dressed in, uh, as a king. Uh, he's got a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. Man, I mean, he's looking mighty spiffy. He's looking good. He's looking like a royal person here. And he's as close as you could get to being the king. He's the second in command now. And so he looked impressive. And the response of the capital city was one of celebration as they rejoiced and were glad. And you really do kind of get the the vibe here that Haman was not really appreciated behind the scenes. Uh, Recall how different was the response at Haman's decree as it went forth. Remember that back in chapter 3 and verse 15. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command. The decree was proclaimed in Shushan. That's the capital city. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But what was the response of the capital city? The city of Shushan was perplexed. They were perplexed. Verse 16. Mordecai, you know, this Jew in this high position now, is looking like a king himself. And verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. What a verse. This expresses overwhelming exuberance over what has happened. Light is a symbol of happiness and of well-being. Gladness and joy are very close, as as if the writer is finding it hard to express the greatness of their delight. And now the Jews were in the honored position, which is a rarity during the times of the Gentiles. But here they were. Verse 17, And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness. A feast and a holiday... 
then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Hey, it might be a good time to convert. Things are really going the way of the Jews here and the king is totally behind it. Wherever the news went, there was a celebration. It was happy days are here again for the Jews. They feasted and it was just suddenly a holiday, suddenly a time of celebration. And the result of having the Jews in a sense, become the favored people of the king. I mean, the queen is now Jewish. The prime minister, Mordecai, is now Jewish. And the result was many of the people of the land were converting to Judaism. The Septuagint, by the way, translates became, Jew, translates became Jews as were circumcised, which is the outward sign of, of full conversion to Judaism. And the, the circumcision being the outward sign of the covenant relationship they have with God. Well, and the reason for this, note this, is because of the fear, the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Even though the name of God is not mentioned in the book, the sense is that the people generally took note of the providential hand of God upon the people of the Jews and really kind of wanted to be a part of this at this point. Uh, look, a Jew is now queen. Look, a Jew is now the prime minister. Look what has happened to the arch enemy of the Jews, as he's called repeatedly throughout the book, the enemy of the Jews. Look what happened to him, Haman. It seemed to be dawning upon the people that indeed the Jews had something going here as the favored people of God. And that is a good thing. Moody Bible Commentary says, this is the only time that the scripture refers to a historical event in which many among the peoples of the land became Jews. So this is a very rare occasion. God sometimes allows his chosen people, the Jews, to get into impossible situations so that he might come to their rescue, either directly, direct intervention, or through providential workings. And he does this to the end that he might show himself faithful and powerful, the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and thereby bring great glory to himself before the entire world. In fact, God's setting the world up for another go at this even now. You know, God did this in relationship to Pharaoh, you know, back in the the book of Exodus. You know, all those plagues that happened to Pharaoh and he's just hard as nails and who do you think is going to win this battle? Well, it's going to be the God of Israel. And he says in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, But indeed for this, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may, sh- may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God says, I'm going to make myself famous through you, Pharaoh. And he did. God did it in relationship to Haman when this vast world power and those at the very top, which is Haman and his manipulation of the king, were all aligned against the Jews. It seemed like an impossible situation. And here comes God's providential intervention. God did it in relationship to the the powerful Herod who tried to take out baby Jesus but did not succeed. Isn't that kind of interesting? God did it in relationship to Hitler, who proposed as the final solution to wipe out the Jews, but didn't succeed. And on the heels of this, the nation of Israel was born as a nation. 
You just can't beat the Jews because of their God who is behind them. Not because of them, but really often in spite of themselves. And God keeps on doing it in relationship to the the Gentile Arabs who hate the Jews. Even today, the passion of the the Gentile Arabs, who are Muslims, uh, their great overwhelming desire is to drive the Jews into the sea and annihilate them once and for all, but they just can't seem to get the job done. Why not? I mean, you're talking about those millions and millions and millions of Arabs around. The Jews are just little, little people. And how, do, how does this, how, why do they get the job done? They all want to do it. They can't get it done. God will do it in relationship to Gog and Magog which will form a coalition so great that it will ascend on the land of Israel like a mighty storm, quote, covering the land like a cloud, Ezekiel 38, 9. Only to have God intervene in such a mighty way that it will take seven months just to bury the enemy. They're going to bury him. You come to the land of Israel, you're coming for a funeral. Yours. That's what it's going to be for Gog and Magog. And finally will come the climax of Gentile world history. Where is it all going? Well, it's going to the point where Antichrist and all the forces of the world will converge on Jerusalem in one final attempt to wipe out the Jews, only to have, it is the time of Jacob's trouble, only to have Jesus their deliverer come as King of kings and Lord of lords to rescue them. And in that whole process, of course, they will be calling upon the name of the Lord. Many will be saved in those days. But we read about this in Zechariah chapter 14. For I will gather all the nations, not some. If we're still a nation, we'll be represented there. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. What do we call this event? Well, we call this the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming to touch down there on the Mount of Olives, the second coming. He's coming to rescue his people as the whole world has gathered together against Jerusalem. Never, ever count the Jews as down and out because God is providentially preserving them. It's the only explanation for what we see in the world even today. I often say God's great apologetic, in a sense, is the Jews. There's other ones. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the existence of the church as it came into existence, on and on. But what God is doing in relationship to the Jews, his one chosen nations, is a great apologetic. And in the end, God always brings glory to himself because of his relationship with Israel. Only a fool would say, I am putting myself in the camp of the enemy of the Jews. That's what Haman did. Don't be a fool. Don't put yourself in that category. It's still true what God said to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Still true. 
God blesses the Jews and he curses those who curse them. I'm always amazed when I read Joel chapter 3, which is set in the context of the coming day of the Lord, which builds to the, the climactic series of battles that we call Armageddon. And it always amazes me that when we come to this final judgment that God is going to bring on the world, pre-kingdom, it always amazes me that God hasn't forgotten about his people Israel. And he very plainly says there, he doesn't appreciate what the world all along has been doing to his chosen people and their promised land. And it always amazes me that the world pays absolutely no attention to this reality, even though it's written in the Holy Scriptures plain as day. Notice what it says there. Joel chapter 3 and verse 2. I will gather all the nations, same language as Zechariah 14. I will gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, this, this valley in Israel. And I will enter into judgment with them there. Why? Why is this climactic challenge and showdown with the nations coming into play? Well, God tells us why. On account of my people. Well, who is that? The church? No, 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 no. On account of my people, my heritage, Israel. We don't have to wonder. It's stated here. On account of my people, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. Ah, has that been fulfilled? Yes, they have been scattered among the nations. They're still scattered among the nations, although about half of them have now come back home in blindness to the nation of Israel. But whom they have scattered among the nations. And they have also divided up my land. Is Israel a divided land today? If you know anything about what's going on in Israel, that is a very divided land, including the capital city of Jerusalem. There's all these little pockets of Muslims throughout the whole land of Israel. Jews don't go in those little pockets. They're all over the place in the land of Israel. It's a totally divided up land. But notice, as you continue on in that chapter, it says the Lord also will roar from Zion. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah roaring. And utter his voice, where from? From Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Haman is a lesson for the world. They're not listening, but they should be. Don't mess with Israel. Don't mess with Israel. Not really essentially because of Israel, but because of Israel's God, who is in covenant relationship with these chosen people in spite of themselves. For better or worse, so to speak, God has forever allied himself with Israel, his chosen people, who he's in a permanent covenant relationship with. And in the end... He will turn both Israel and her fortunes around to the glory of himself. The greatest reversal in history is yet to be seen. And yes, it's conditioned upon what? It's conditioned upon Israel coming to repentance. That's why the kingdom wasn't set up the first time. But the second go around, when Elijah comes on to say, he is going to be successful. The people are going to come to repentance. And then the Messiah, their deliverer, is going to come. Yes, the greatest reversal in history is yet to be seen. 
You got the whole world, the whole world, all the nations allied and rallying against Jerusalem. And you've got Jerusalem. And you've got the little tiny nation of Israel. Who's go- Who's your money on? Who's going to win this? Well, like I say, don't ever count the Jews out because it's bigger than the Jews. It's as big as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The greatest reversal in the history of the world is yet to be seen. It is coming. Stay tuned. Of course, I'm expecting us to be raptured out before we get to that finale. But it is coming. All right, let's have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer tonight.